0: So where are we now in this story we're about to read? Well, we've been working our way through the book of Luke. We've been working our way through the um, chapter 8. And we've already had two miracles in this chapter, haven't we? We had the calming of the storm. And last week, David talked about the demon-possessed man. And today, we're going to get the third and fourth miracles in this sequence, this volley of four miracles, one after the other. And together, they complete a sequence that, that are noted for their journey between them, one, two, three, four, in the order they they appear, in the order they happened, there's a journey to them, there's an arc to it. Because um, as we look at them in order, we realize they are increasingly more fundamental as the types of miracles they are. They're increasingly more fundamental with regard to our human frailty, our human fragility. The first one, coming of the storm, that's a storm, that's a natural force. It's something that's completely external, to us. It's a storm. But then the one we heard about last week, the demon-possessed man, about legion, that's about evil. It's about spiritual influence but with some physical outworking, if you like. And then today we're going to learn about a woman with a sickness. That's about our actual bodies decaying and malfunctioning. And then we're also today going to learn about a young girl uh, who dies. And that death for us is final and complete. And so I've given them the Ds just to help you. In order, you get the, you get the storm, the demon-possessed man, uh, the woman with the sickness, and the young girl who dies. You've you got disaster, you've got demonization, you've got disease, and you've got death. Look, Sheila likes that. There you go. Dis- you've got disaster... Demonization, disease, and death. And each, in that order, each is moving from the outside towards our inner being, more and more, but at the same time escalating in terms of existential and internal impact to us as humans. And each time, we see Jesus categorically <coughs> excuse me, proving his utter authority in every single one of those realms. But also, today, we're going to see a touching display of Jesus' divine heart, within that, that he's not just Lord of all those realms, wonderful as that is, but it doesn't even stop there. But we also see today there's one who, he is one, who despite being unapproachably holy God, he's also one who nevertheless makes himself approachable and approaches us too. And so we're going to see here today, yet again, his authority is once more revealed, but so is his approachability too. Here is a holy God who leans into our mess, who leans into our dirt and our brokenness rather than flinches from it. And in that, once again, we're going to see the wonderful good news of a God who enables rescue in the first place. So let's read Luke chapter 8 from verse 40 to the end of the chapter. Now, When Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds around you are uh, surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Now, someone touch me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Bit blunt. Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear. Only believe and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child and all weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Wonderful, wonderful two stories. But... What have we got here? Well, it's a bit of a miracle sandwich. It's like one miracle, the story of one miracle happening within the story of another, isn't it? And between them, it all feature some enlightening details that we can miss if we're not careful. First of all, it's just helpful just to take a step back for a moment and just appreciate the different types of people um, we've got here. If you see in verse 49... Um, when the people, while Jesus was still speaking and the woman's been healed, the people from Jairus' house come up and say, your daughter's dead, do not trouble, what do they call him? Do not trouble the teacher. The title teacher is used as a title for Jesus. That's a bit of a go-to title from the people in, in general. There's a general pattern. If you look through this gospel, there's a general pattern where you find people outside of the disciples call Jesus teacher. That's their go-to title for him. But meanwhile, up to this point, the disciples, uh, even in verse 45, um, and for a few more verses beyond this, up till now, the disciples, verse 45, when all, when all denied that anybody touched Jesus, Peter says, master the crowds surround you and are pressing in. The disciples called Jesus master. It's interesting to see the difference, that to the general people, he's teacher, he's a rabbi. He's, a, he's someone to, to respect, someone to be revered as holy and wise. But to Jesus' disciples, to his actual followers, he's seen in a very different light. He's not teacher, he's master. But then this contrast becomes even wider, um, in, in not, not too distant a time, probably in the next, in the next chapter onwards, where they realise that his mastership actually is far greater than they'd ever realized and very soon from the end of chapter 9 that language is going to start to change it again into them calling him lord you see for the disciples the jigsaw pieces really are starting to fall into place and including today's miracles as well so the disciples know that he's more than a teacher he's not just a teacher he's master but very soon they begin to realize he's even more than that actually he's lord so, it's just helpful to remember as we proceed through these stories, we have the people in general ranging from those who consider even Jesus a threat, some of them, to those who considered him well, he's somewhat holy and wise and he does some miracles. But then there are those who realise that he is more than that, but not just more than that. They're currently on to the fact that he is in fact Lord of everything. And they're going to have a very explicit conversation about that in a few verses time as well. And the miracles that Jesus is currently performing, as I've just described, that series of four miracles, they all serve to ram that point home, that he is Lord of the physical realm. He is Lord of the spiritual realm. He's Lord of everything above that and below that and in between and outside in. So with all that in mind, let's just look at these healings in focus. Let's just step into each of these two stories um, briefly, just a little bit more, before at the end we we'll then connect the dots between them and see the gospel even more on display as a result so first of all the first miracle that actually happens is uh, the woman uh, is the subject of disease it's the woman with a sickness now this woman she's been bleeding for 12 years she had this discharge of blood for 12 years that is a long time 12 years constantly cast your mind back to when barack obama first became u.s president that was 2008 into 2009, he became US president. That feels like a long time ago now, doesn't it? It's almost a lifetime ago. Barack Obama, when he first... Can you, I can't remember before he was president. Or imagine what life's going to be like at the end of 2033. Will I have my jetpack? That's my question. Yeah, yeah, Matt thinks so. I'd love to think so. They still haven't turned up, have they? 2033 feels like a lifetime away, doesn't it? And so, yeah. And so for this woman, these 12 years of bleeding must have felt like... A lifetime. And Mark also tells us the same. This appears in Matthew and Mark in the other Gospels as well. Mark tells us the same as Luke, that she spent all her money on doctors, but she never got better. In fact, she got worse. So this woman here, she is desperate. She is now without hope. She's run out of options. And it must have eaten her up in so many ways and affected every aspect and corner of her life. But then she hears that this increasingly famous Jesus of Nazareth, who some call teacher and some call master, but everyone is discussing his miracles, he's come to town. He's come to town. This Jesus is here. I want to go and find him. Now she must have grasped that he's more than just a teacher because she fully believes he's the answer to her problems. Um, not enough to, she got, not, hasn't got enough confidence to go up to him and ask for healing and ask for help. But she has enough confidence to actually reach out silently as he passes. And just as, as it says in, uh, in Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 5, it tells us, she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And then what happens when she does that? Mark chapter 5, verse 29 says, immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was Healed of her disease. Hallelujah! Praise God! It worked! But what's all that about? She touched his garment, and she was healed. What's all that about? Because other people were bumping into him. Remember, Peter has said to him, the crowd surrounds you. People are pressing in on you. No wonder you're being jostled and bumped. People are bumping into Jesus, but we don't hear any other reports of people's warts or toothache or dodgy hips being healed. Only this woman who reaches out, this woman with her laser-targeted sighting on the one who could do for her what no one else has been able to do, as she does that, she receives her deepest desire. But we need to remember, she touched his garment. She didn't touch his actual flesh. She touched his garment. Now, what's all that about? There's, There's some element of mystery there, but it's not completely outside of our grasp. We just need to look at it through a Jewish lens because in the Jewish covenant context the fringes of a man's garment also known as the wings it's kind of the same same word in its root the fringes of the wings the hem, hem of a man's garment were tied into his actual identity as a man of God they represented who he was in God God instructed the people of Israel to put special tassels on the edges of their garments to act as a reminder of their affiliation with him and him only. You can read about that at the end of Numbers chapter 15. God gives them instructions about these tassels that will just remind them and identify them as his. And elsewhere in the Old Testament then we see other references to it. There's a story about David and Saul and what happens to the edge of Saul's garment. There's um, Ruth and Boaz and what happens with the edge of Boaz's garment about what it represents. It's about their manhood, who they are in God and what they, who they represent as a person. We see examples of these wings, these fringes of a man's garment being closely identified with a man himself as a child of God. And so here, the woman, she doesn't just reach out to touch Jesus' sleeve or to just touch his back or touch his shoulder as he passes by. No, she reaches out to touch the very fringes that are tied so intricately into representing who he is so intricately woven into his identity in that respect that even though she's still touching material, Jesus senses power going out from him as she does so and as she is healed. What happens as a result is brilliant. Matthew chapter 14, you then discover later on, people implored Jesus that they might only touch the fringe of his garment and as many as touched it were made well. People became intentional in seeking this out because they've heard about this woman. She touched his garment, she got healed. I'm going to have a bit of that. I want to touch the fringe of his garment. And that's how that happens later on and they get healed as a result. So this woman, she touches him. She doesn't ask. She simply reaches out and touches the fringes of his garment. It happened while Jesus was en route, while he's passing by. She wanted to do this in obscurity. She wanted to do this quietly and silently. Um, but later on when Jesus says, who, who did that? As all the crowd all jostle out of the way, she's left standing there. She realises she's not hidden, is the word that's used. That's what she'd wanted. She wanted to be hidden. It was a covert act. She was happy to be in obscurity. She was preferring to not be noticed, but realising there's no wriggle room now, and he's singling her out. She trembles, she puts her hand up, she goes, yeah, it was me. She explains in the presence of everyone why she had touched him or what had happened. Now, I love this moment because... Jesus could have carried on walking. He could have just not made a thing of it. She wanted to stay hidden. She's healed. uh, Let no one else know. But no, he stops and he ensures she's identified and picked out from the crowd. Not to be a meanie. Not because she didn't want to be known and therefore I'm going to make sure she is. It's not that. It's to ensure that she and everyone knows that she is accepted, that she is clean and as he's, in his words to her, she can go in peace. And I wonder if that's just, just to briefly press pause for a moment. I think maybe there's someone here today. You might be hiding in the corner a little bit, hiding in the crowd, with an ongoing, maybe it's like a thorn in, thorn in your side. There's something that's been nagging you for what feels like a lifetime, whether it's physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, whatever it might be. But just know this, that God himself sees you. And he knows you. And his immediate intent and, and, and desire for you is grace and mercy and that you can know you're accepted, to know you are clean, and to know you can go in peace. So that's important just to say to you right now. That's, what, that's his heart for you. So that's the woman with her bleeding. We'll come, we'll come back to her in a minute. Let's just have a little look at this, um, this girl who dies. Because this girl tells us she's about 12. Same number. She's about 12. She was born when the woman's bleeding began. So their journeys to meeting with Jesus have been similar in length. What must have felt like a lifetime for the woman was a literal lifetime for this girl. And while that woman was being ground down and ground down by, by her worsening Debility, the girl was growing up, blossoming, becoming a young woman. Only for that to be snatched away by the enemy of death. Her family now is desperate. My only daughter is dying. It's, it's, It's unthinkable, isn't it? But her father is desperate and he has only one place to go. This man Jesus that he's heard about. Now it clearly was a very acute or last stage illness. because um, even in the short space of time of Jesus coming uh, of Jairus coming to get Jesus, the unthinkable has happened. It's in that brief space of time his daughter has actually died. And these people they come up to Jesus and Jairus and the, verse 49, don't don't bother him. Your daughter's gone. Don't bother the teacher. It's a little bit blunt, isn't it? Don't bother him. But immediately there's this sense of defeat. There's a deflation. It's kind of, it's, all of it is deathly in its acceptance, isn't it? The mor- mourning has already begun. There's a commotion outside the house. There's weeping and mourning they, as they arrive at the house. They see it. Matthew 9, verse 23 says, that As they came to the ruler's house, they saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. Now, mourning is a much more overt and immediately key aspect of the culture then and now, in fact, in the Middle East, compared to us by a long shot, isn't it? It's very different. And um, as far as these people are concerned, it's obvious. Jairus and Jesus are too late, and the morning has already begun. So when Jesus says, she's sleeping, they mock. Now, death is our final enemy, isn't it? It's, and even while today we can still have potential for rapid defibrillation, there's uh, defibrillators on every street corner or whatever hiding. Uh, you can have drug intervention to, to help help, um, help bring you know, bring people back from the brink of death or that or um, you know, pavement on the on the pavement surgery if the helicopter can land in time. Things like we have got some wonderful options today, but at the very least, at the very end, at some point, death is final, even for us today, isn't it? So for Jesus to say she's sleeping. Perhaps it's not surprising they mock. I've got to be very careful not to point my finger at them and go, who do they think they are laughing at him? I probably would have done as well. Like, Jesus, what are you talking about? She's gone. But what does Jesus do? He takes the parents and Peter, James and John, that trio amongst the 12 disciples, there's this inner core of Peter, James and John they get, they get welcomed into, into many more intimate moments with Jesus. And in a few verses' time, in the next chapter, they're going to get, they're the three who are going to get to witness Jesus' transfiguration as all his glory is revealed. They're going to be privileged to that. They get privileged to be present for this in the house. And they go in together, and Jesus takes this dead body, she takes her by the hand, and he tells her so lovingly to get up. And this girl, who was categorically dead, it says her spirit returned she was clearly dead but she awakens to new life again hallelujah imagine Jairus I mean, imagine Jairus in that moment imagine two wonderful stories of miracles one woman healed one girl restored to her family now let's just bring them together now so we've got these two amazing stories of restoration and healing but what's the point here What's that big take-home today? Well, the obvious link between both these people, between the incidents, is that of healing. That is something we've looked at um, in other Luke passages. We've been working our way through this Gospel. Over recent um, weeks and months, we've been looking at the subject of healing that's something we'll continue to look at and that's something we're going to keep pressing into and seeking. God still heals today. We've seen it and we're going to keep asking for it. Of course we can. Of course we can. Of course we will. But today there is another very key and even more fundamental link here between the two strands, between the two stories. It's something that would have been obvious to the Jewish audience at the time and that's the subject of uncleanness. Because as I said before, disaster, demonisation, disease and death, these four miracles in a row, they are all results of sin. They are all hallmarks of a fallen creation. And today's ones, disease and death, they are physical consequences of our broken world, of our broken bodies. And that's all been broken by us. Because God formed this world in perfection and in purity and in wholeness. And his, his intent was, it, was for it to remain so. And he gave it to us to steward and to nurture on, on his behalf in, in the whole uh, understanding of wholeness. But we and it are marred by our brokenness, by our turning away from his lordship and his design. So we need to remember that sin is, sin is not just the naughty things we do, as much as um, it's, the, it's the posture of our hearts that causes these choices, the things that we do. That's what sin is. Sin, sin, is, also, sin is a power that crouches to entrap us and ensnare us. You see it in the Garden of Eden, the serpent crouching, waiting to pose that question that sets the scene for, for them falling away. You see it in Cain and Abel, it talks about sin crouching. There is, there is a power to it, and it causes us, we choose to step into its temptations, and then we sin, and that becomes the, the, the things we do. But sin is also a sickness that we've brought upon ourselves and our world through inheritance through our forefathers, but also through choice. We've brought that upon ourselves. We still choose to do the things we do. So it's not a sickness as in, I can't help it, I'm sick. I can't help being sick. No, we also choose to embrace it, don't we? We choose to partner with it. We still have responsibility in that. And sin in general, as we've turned away from God, this has all affected our physical world. It's affected our physical bodies. It's affected our spiritual relationship with the one who is perfect. And sin is why this perfect world now features calamities and evil influence and sickness and death, all of which we've been seeing through this chapter. So now we need to remember that sin to a perfect holy God cannot be anything other than a stench because of his perfection. It's unclean. Sin is unclean to the very deepest level and so he cannot ignore it, even a whiff of it. But also, anything that represents that brokenness needs to be made whole as well. So we need to understand, we're going to talk about the subject of being unclean, but we need to note, first of all, this this woman was not sinful because, because of her bleeding. Her bleeding was a result of humanity's brokenness. Okay, We need to understand this. But being unclean, and we'll talk about why, why she would have been considered unclean. Being unclean does not necessarily mean sinful, but it does mean not whole. Because sin has affected every aspect of our existence and that breaks out then in sinful acts and sinful thoughts and and other emblems of our brokenness, which would include disaster and demonization and disease and death. And so let me just explain a little bit more about uncleanness and see what Jesus has done with it. Because in God. Establishing his first covenant or his first marriage vows, if you like, with his people in the Old Testament. We see it includes in Leviticus chapter 11, you can have a look. God says to his people, be holy because I am holy. You shall not make yourselves unclean. And then onwards through the law, the people were alerted to what that looks like living in a way that sings aloud about purity and about being careful not to be flippant about sin, about what it means to be clean and unclean, ceremonially clean and unclean, as well as spiritually clean and unclean. And that aspect of uncleanness and the emblems of that, that encompassed representations of a broken world, which would include skin diseases. If you had a skin disease, you were considered unclean. Now, like I sort of said with a woman, if you had a skin disease, leprosy, that, that's, that, that's not sin, but it's an outworking of our sin, of our brokenness, which is then considered unclean because it's an emblem that needs dealing with, if that makes sense. So skin diseases were considered unclean. Unusual body discharges were considered unclean. Body discharges to do with a reproduction that end up in the wrong place, <laughs> both male and female, that is considered unclean. And dead bodies were also considered unclean unclean. Numbers chapter 19 verse 13. Numbers 19 verse 13 says, whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died, and does not cleanse himself, which then involves a week-long ritual of washing with special water, if they don't do that, that person defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. They shall be cut off from Israel. His uncleanness is still on him. This is how much God wanted to understand the very heart of how much sin has affected us and therefore the notion of what is clean and unclean. So there was ceremonial washing as well as ceremonial uncleanness in the first place. So as a result, this woman's bleeding issue meant she was considered ceremonially unclean. So she had not been permitted to visit the temple for worship. Anyone she touched would be considered unclean too as a result. Spiritual uncleanness in this context was considered contagious. So coming into contact with something or someone unclean would make you unclean and then you'd have to go through this ceremonial cleansing ritual as well. Leviticus 5 will explain that. And yet, here in this story, Jesus, holy, pure, whole God himself, the cleanest of the clean, he comes into contact with this ceremonially unclean woman, but he doesn't bat an eyelid. She reaches out and touches what represents his very sonship and his very personhood, and yet instead of being scolded for it, or shamed for it, or stoned for it, she receives mercy and healing. The unclean touches the clean, and yet she receives grace. But also, then we come into the next story again, the dead girl. Dead bodies. What did I just say? Dead bodies are unclean. Anyone who touches a dead body, the body of any person who has died, is unclean. But what does Jesus do with the dead girl? He touches her. The widow's son that we heard about in the previous chapter, Jesus didn't touch him. He touches the buyer, but he doesn't touch the body. He just says to him, son, get up. He he talks to him. He calls him out of death. And Lazarus, later on, Jesus doesn't go and touch him. He just tells him to open the grave and he shouts out. He calls Lazarus out. He does it by voice. But here, with this young girl, Jairus' daughter, Jesus actually takes her hand. Now, that doesn't get mentioned because suddenly everyone else is awestruck by the fact that she's not dead anymore. (laughs) I think that would be enough to distract me from what he's just been doing. But it doesn't change the fact that when Jesus touched her, she was dead. So we have the, the woman, she reaches out and touches Jesus, while the dead girl is touched by Jesus. Holy God, the ultimate in purity, he welcomes being touched by, the one, by one who is the very epitome of what it means to be unclean, And he even reaches out and touches the unclean himself. There there is love. There is grace. That's a miracle in itself, isn't it? But we just need to think about this. A simple question. If something clean, just generally, if something clean comes into contact with something dirty, which one changes? The clean thing. Something dirty does not become clean by coming into contact with something clean. The clean thing picks up some of the dirt, doesn't it? I I know I've told this story before, but I remember in the 90s when I was in the ambulance service and we did some um, hand washing techniques, which we've all been learning in the past 18 months, haven't we? But just to prove a point, they gave us this transparent gel that is reactive to ultraviolet light. They said, rub it all over your hands. It's just like alcohol gel, it looks like it. Rub it all over your hands, it's all clear. We go, and wash your hands, wash it off. So we go and wash it off, do our best, try and remember the best way of doing it in front and back and in your nail beds, and don't forget the wrists, do your thumbs, do the so- don't forget the sides. And we came back and put our hands underneath an ultraviolet lamp. And you could see the white, the blue-white of this stuff that we still hadn't removed was in between our fingers, it was still in our nail beds, it was still there. It's like, I, thought I, I thought I'd done a really good job. It was still everywhere. So go back and wash your hands again. So you go back and wash your hands again, I'm gonna do it properly this time, there'll be nothing left. And you come back and put your hands underneath the UV lamp and there's still some there. Trying to get rid of it was a nightmare. But what was interesting was if when the teacher wasn't looking, we took that UV lamp around the room and put it on our uniforms and, and had a look at the door handles and had a look at the bathroom taps, that stuff was everywhere. When the dirty comes into contact with the clean, which one changes? The clean, the dirt spreads. Or to take it to another level, you you can share your sickness with people, but you can't share your health. Again, we've been very aware of that in the past 18 months. Hanging out with sick people can make you sick. Hanging out with well people doesn't make you more well. Good health, it doesn't catch. Bad health can. Dirt stains what is clean, never the other way around. Cleanness can't be passed on like that, uncleanness can. If you're, and if you're already dirty, you need a source of purity outside of you to do the job for you. Otherwise, you're just going to be moving the dirt around to another part of your body. Oh, this is dirty, here, oh, I've got it in my hands now. It's just going to move around, isn't it? You need an outside source, outside source of purity to clean you. You need clean water, you need alcohol gel, you need a shower, whatever. And spiritual and ceremonial uncleanness was in the same way observed to have a contagious effect, that you'd be marred by coming into contact with an unclean person, whether it's certain skin diseases, body fluids, or a dead body. But here, Jesus is unaffected. Why did Jesus not get dirty? I don't know if any of you saw when the pandemic first happened, there was a video floating around, kind of like a science experiment for primary school age kids or whatever, where you get a plate or a bowl and put some water in it, you sprinkle loads of ground pepper on the top and it will sit on the surface. And if you put your finger to break the surface of the water and put it back out again, you'll have pepper all over your finger. What's clean has touched the dirt and you get dirty as well. If you do the same thing and just put a tiny bit of washing up liquid on your finger, go home and try it later. And then put it into into the the bowl or the plate of water, and just enough to break the surface, that pepper flees to the edge. It absolutely runs a mile as far as possible as it can get away from your, your pure finger. It's brilliant. Have a look on YouTube. Look it up on YouTube if you don't want to get your finger wet. But Jesus, the ultimate in clean... He is not made dirty through touch, but in his grace, the opposite, the impossible, happens. Sin and death, they don't just flee from him, but if if we are in him, their cloyings, eternal effects, flee from us too as a result, as we abide in him. See, Jesus stepped into our brokenness to take our sin, to take our brokenness, our uncleanness, upon his very own shoulders, pouring out his blood so that we might be totally washed clean. So whatever you've done, whatever you've thought or failed to do or harbored in your heart or might even do in the future, Jesus has dealt with that on the cross so that its consequence might be so washed away it's as if it never happened. Praise God. Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says, Jesus saved us not because of works done by us, in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The washing of regeneration. Pure God takes our dirt and he eradicates its legacy. In him you find utter cleansing. All we have to do is be on the receiving end of that touch. And as we reach out to touch the very hem of his garment, that simple act of just accepting he is where ultimate healing is found, we then discover that he's, he's not surprised. And in fact, we discover that he's already been reaching out to us long before we were ever aware of his presence, when we've been dead in our sins. So I just want to ask a question before I come to the end. Where are you right now? You're obviously in this room for a reason, listening to this. So where are you? Who are you in this story? Are you you in the crowd just watching on, just curious, who is this Jesus? Is he teacher? Is he master? Is he something else? I'm just trying to work it out. I'm just curious. But maybe you're someone who Sees him for who he is, and you're straining to get a touch of his presence. Brilliant. Keep reaching out. Or maybe maybe you're completely unaware, like that dead girl. This Jesus stuff is just kind of empty words to you. Even she received healing without asking. She was unable to ask. She was dead. But her dad asked on her behalf. And if you're here today, I'm pretty sure people are therefore praying for you, asking for you. So maybe, if that's you, maybe he's in front of you right now, making contact and saying, child, arise. Are your eyes beginning to open to the possibility of one who brings life and light and cleansing, who is right in front of you? Because if that's you, I pray that through his touch and his call, you can sit up, you can take a breath, you can look Jesus in the eye and truly meet your healer for the first time. So I just want to repeat what I said near the beginning, that here we see a holy God, just proof that here is a holy God who leans into our mess and our dirt rather than flinches from it. Because in our natural state, we are all spiritually sick, unendingly, and we can spend all our effort and all our money on different physicians, so to speak, to cure us. But we won't find the answer, whether that's self-help books or gurus, or life coaches, or any form of faith or formula that misses Christ as the one. But in fact, even more than that, without him, we are all spiritually dead. Unable to revive ourselves and breathe life back into our broken beings. But there is a divine creator, a divine healer, who has stepped down, who allows us to touch him, who in fact reaches out and touches us when we can't do that ourselves. So, I just say, whoever you are, come to Jesus, reach out, and let him give you new life. Let me just pray for us. Lord, we celebrate you. We thank you that you are the holy God who, even when we were down in the pit, you reached down to rescue us. When we've been lost in our mess, You were willing to roll your sleeves up and get involved. We thank you that you, holy, unapproachable God, make yourself approachable and you approach us. That by your grace and your power, we don't get you dirty, but you make us clean. We thank you. We celebrate you. We love you as we spend a different means of focusing on On this and and reaching out to you, help us by Holy Spirit to meet with you this morning. May you come and do your work amongst us. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.